Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. I'm excited to be with you once again this week as we dive into scripture. So as you know, we've been looking through the book of Romans pretty in depth, and we've been going verse by verse through that magnificent letter of Paul's. They call it Paul's most famous letter, and I agree. Um, It has had a tremendous impact on Western culture and upon Western Christianity. And so it is definitely worth all the time that we're using to to go through it line by line. Um, But today we're actually going to take a break from that. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1, specifically the Greek version of Psalm chapter 1, the Septuagint or the old Greek, we might say. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited about, about that. And in fact, when we look at this psalm, we're actually going to be able to make some observations um, about it that have some bearing, at least, on our study of Romans, specifically on the things that we've talked about, um, in like Romans chapter 2, um, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 10, you know, where we've talked about some of Paul's statements about the law, um, the Torah, the namas. Um, and uh, so some of that's going to come alive today as well. So I'm always eager to look at other texts of scripture just to diversify our conversations, but also to um, expand our, our horizons of understanding, if you will, um, uh, you know, with respect to the, the topic that we've been looking at. So we've been looking at Romans and all those fun issues that come up in there. And so by looking at Psalm chapter one, I think we'll be able to um, expand our understanding a little bit to help us to see why Paul said what he said and why Paul emphasized what he emphasized in, in Romans, specifically about the Torah, about the law. So anyway, yeah, we'll have, have some fun about, uh, have some fun with that. Also, I've just been, you know, I've just been reading through, um, uh, the, some of the Psalms and I've been focusing quite a bit on Psalm chapter one, just kind of going, you know, uh, going at a very slow pace through, uh, some of these Psalms specifically, uh, in the, in the, the, the Greek version of, of the Psalms. And, uh, I've been looking at, a lot. I don't know for whatever reason I've been revisiting Psalm chapter one, and uh, I've been doing that for I guess about the last couple of weeks. And so I thought, you know, I'll just make make a little podcast episode out of it and share some of my thoughts and so forth. So today we're just going to go verse by verse through Psalm chapter one, and I'll be making some um, some comments along the way. Some of them devotional, some of them uh, Greek geek kind of stuff as well. Um, but um, either way, I hope that you enjoy the conversation or the discussion. Um, it's really not a conversation or discussion because I'm the only one talking, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, just I just hope you enjoy the topic. Before we dive into that, I want to talk a little bit about Eternity Bible College. Now, a lot of you know that that's where I work. I'm a professor at Eternity, and I like to tell people that I work for Eternity. It has dual meaning. I work for the kingdom the eternal kingdom of God, and I work for this place called Eternity Bible College. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because I am passionate about what we do at Eternity Bible College. Eternity is a fully accredited institution, and we are very proud of our curriculum, and it's something that I want to talk with you just a little bit about in case you are looking for a place to study and further your understanding about Scripture. Um The cool thing about Eternity that I'm super passionate about is our flagship degree called the Bachelor of Advanced Biblical and Cultural Exegesis. It's a mouthful, but it really does capture what we do in that degree, in that program. So we not only teach students how to um, exegete scripture, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but we do more than just teach, uh, teach scripture. We teach students how to exegete culture. 
And this is an advanced degree, an advanced biblical uh, and, and cultural exeget- exegetical degree. Sorry, it's tongue-tied there. Um, but that, that's my point, is that we we do both. Because we think it's important that students not only are able to just get facts about Scripture and to understand what Scripture says, but we want to train students to take what Scripture says and to say that to the culture in a way that's uh, kind and loving and charitable. Because we think God's message, his gospel, is for the whole world. And so we want to equip Christians to um, to be able to uh, convey the truth of Scripture, the truth of our faith to everyone that they're around. We are very proud of our uh, biblical um, exegetical uh, curriculum. And, and, here, and here's why. I mean, there's multiple things I can say, but there's just one thing um, that I, if, if, there, if there was just one thing I could talk about about that, it would be our emphasis on the Old Testament. A lot of Christians simply don't know the Old Testament. And the bits and parts of the Old Testament that they do know, they're not quite sure how it fits in with, say, the New Testament or with other parts of the Old Testament. Let's face it, the Old Testament is pretty big. And um, and it and it can and it has some things in it that are difficult to understand. Our passion at Eternity is to help help uh, our students see the story of Scripture, to see the meta narrative that weaves in and out through the pages of the Old and the New Testaments. Um, we we put a, a a very strong emphasis on the Hebrew Bible um, and helping our students become familiar with it. We have a whole uh, slew of courses called Hebrew Bible Module. And these are courses that take you straight from the Torah all the way to the very end. And they're in, intended to spare no verse. In other words, what I mean by that is to get those scriptures into the hearts and the minds of our students. And our students walk away from those particular courses, especially with a brand new insight and fresh appreciation and strong passion for God's uh, God's Word and God's Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Anyway, if you are looking for a place to study, check out Eternity Bible College. You can visit us at eternity.edu and check us out for more information there. Information there, you can contact us if you have any questions. The last thing I would say is, look, we work really hard to make Eternity Bible College curriculum and the programs that we offer. We work hard to make them accessible. And by accessible, we mean at least two things. One, financially accessible. We don't think that getting a Bible education should break the bank. And so we strive extremely hard and work extremely hard to keep our tuition prices down. And you'll see that on the website. Um, And so check that out. You know, it's financially accessible, but also geographically accessible. See, we have students quite literally all over the world. Uh, from Nepal, the Middle East, the UK, to the US. And it's super cool to see our students interact with one another because they find out that, my goodness, God's church is global. It's everywhere. And we can learn from each other. And so our classroom truly is a global classroom. And um, it's, it's really cool in that regard because we also think that um, that students should not have to leave their ministry, their their place of service in their churches or the mission field where God has called them. We don't think students should have to leave there to go get a Bible education. I mean, how silly would that be to abandon your ministry um, to just go get a ministry degree? <laughs> so we want to come to you, and that's why we strive to make our curriculum completely online. In fact, it is completely online. We work hard to make it accessible financially and geographically. So again, check us out, eternity.edu. If you are looking to um, go back to college, uh, get a degree, or even if you don't want a degree and you don't really plan to graduate with a degree, you just want to get some Bible classes under your belt, 
Then you can sign up for classes uh, through our certificate programs. You can check that out. We offer numerous certificate programs. Looking forward to hearing from you if you have any questions about that. In the meantime, go visit www.eternity.edu. Let's dive into Psalm chapter 1, the Septuagint version, or the Greek version of Psalm chapter 1. So I'll begin reading from the Lexham English Septuagint. That's the version I'll be reading from. And uh, let's begin at verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not go in the counsel of the ungodly, and does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of evil persons. But rather his will is focused on the law of the Lord, and in his law he will meditate day and night. He will be like the tree that has been planted along the streams of the rivers, which will give its fruit in its season, and its leaf will not fall off. In all things, however much he does, he will be given prosperity. Not so the ungodly, not so, but rather they are like the chaff that the wind spreads abroad away from the face of the land. On account of this, the ungodly will not stand up in the judgment, nor will the sinful stand in the counsel of the righteous, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly will perish. Okay, so there's lots to say about this, not least with respect to um, our study of the book of Romans, just like I was saying earlier in the episode. But um, yeah, we'll get to all that in a moment. Let's start off with the very first word. The very first word here is makarios. And um, it, it's translated here as blessed. I think that's a fine translation. You might translate this as happy. Happy is the person who does not go in the counsel of the ungodly. Um, but I think blessed captures this. Um, if you're familiar, I'm sorry, if you're familiar with the New Testament, um, the, the Greek New Testament, you, you will probably, um, remember, uh, in, in the Beatitudes, you'll, you'll recognize that word makarios, um, in the, in the Beatitudes. So blessed are the poor in spirit. This is, uh, makarioi or, um, or makarios, um, is the word here. And uh, same word, blessed or happy, typically it's translated as, um, uh, as blessed. Um, and blessed is aner, blessed is the man. Now, I want to say something about this. Clearly, this should be, you know, literally translated as man. Aner means man or husband. Um, I don't have a problem with it in that sense. The, the thing I would want to say, though, is um, it's perfectly fine to um, bring out in your translations um, something more gender neutral where that is warranted. Here, clearly, the text is not written just to men. Okay, uh, women are included in this um, exhortation, in this psalm, and so I think it's okay to say, blessed is the person um, who does not go in the counsel of the ungodly. You don't have to say, blessed is the man. I mean, any more than you would say, just blessed is the woman. Um, I mean, it applies to men and women, so what would we say? We could say, blessed is the person. Um, that definitely, you know, needs to come out in your teaching, of course. I mean, the sense here does not exclude women, and therefore in our translations, I think it, it's probably important, obviously, to bring that out. So just wanted to say that. Um, lots to be said about gender-neutral terms. You know, oftentimes I'll address an email uh, to a group of people, and I'll say, hey, guys, and uh, I use that in a gender-neutral way. Um, but, um, you know, so there are... Um, there, I, I definitely think, especially in other portions of the text, I think, um, you know, we should probably, you know, get, we, we need to be very, very aware. Let me just say this. We need to be very aware of, of how we're translating in, in this respect, because um, a lot of times we'll say, you know, we'll use the word man, and we mean mankind, and, you know, you know, we, and by mankind, we mean all humans. So why not just say all humans, right? 
and I think that's I think that's something good to do. Um, so here, yeah, I would say blessed is the person. Um, I think that's yeah, perfectly permissible. Um, yeah, blessed is the person who does not go in the counsel of the ungodly. Um, yeah, the word go here is just essentially uh, you know walking. Blessed is the person who does not walk in uh, the counsel of the ungodly. Um, so yeah, uh, I was gonna say with that. Um, can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, um, the, you, in this verse, you have a series of um, of words that are that are meant to kind of piggyback off each other. So, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, and does not stand um, in the way of the sinners, um, and uh, who does not sit in the seat of evil persons. Um, and actually, I would translate that not as evil persons, but maybe something else. We'll get to that in a moment. But you have this idea of a walking, standing, and sitting. Um, yeah, this is just a kind of a progression here that I think the psalmist wants us to see. And I think it's a beautiful way of just saying in in all of our lives and all facets and aspects of our lives, you know, um, we should avoid ungodliness and the specter of any sorts of forms of unrighteousness. I think that's what he's pointing out here, saying, you know, every form of evil, you know, needs to be stayed away from. You know, the counsel of the ungodly is not wise to listen to that. And and to standing in the way of sinners, don't be along their paths. Don't be, um, uh, you know, in, in that realm of thinking. He's not saying, I, I think it's important to say, hopefully it's, um, you know, it goes without saying, but anyway, I want to point it out. It's like, he's not saying don't be friends with, um, you know, sinful people, right? I mean, you're look, we're all sinful people. The The point is he's saying is don't act like that. Don't, don't exist within the realm of sinfulness. Okay. Don't, you know, don't walk in those ways. Don't sit in those chairs. Don't stand in that path. And so it's just kind of a, a beautiful little picture here. Um, yeah. In the council of, in the council of the ungodly, bule asabon, um, do not walk in the bule asabon, the council of the ungodly. So asabon, um, comes from Asabes, and it just it just means exactly what how translated um, ungodly, um, something non sacred, something along those lines. Um, yeah, uh, don't stand in the in this in the way of of sinful people of sin, sinners. Um, hamatalos, that's the word for sinners. Um, um, uh, in the in the in the way of sinners, it's the idea of a, a type of person. Right, someone who uh, transgresses the ways of God. Um, do not sit in the seat of evil persons. Um, I'll, I'll say something about that translation, evil persons, in a moment. But yeah, the idea of not sitting in the seat um, again captures the same idea as I was saying earlier about don't don't exist within the realm of of the people. Interesting. The, the word here is co- um, the word for um, seat. Do not sit in the seat of uh, of evil persons is cathedra. Uh, you might have heard of a cathedral. That's the chair of the bishop, right? And so cath- uh, cathedra is what's used here. Um, don't sit in their in their seats. And you know, um, this can be applied to all sorts of different uh, situations. To um, yeah. Anyway, I want to say something about loimos. Uh, loimos. This is the word that um, is translated as evil persons. Um, in this text, so and does not sit in the seat of evil persons. I would not have translated it like that, to be honest with you. Um, uh, loim, the word the word here is loimos, and um, if you look it up, it, it means something along the lines of a pest or a or even a pestilence or a plague of sorts. 
Um, and, and the word actually does occur in, um, in the New Testament. If you, I mean, you, you can go look up all the meanings of this word. I, I, I've just got pulled up here, the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament kind of gives you all the usages and occurrences and, and whatnot. Um, and, and it's interesting in the New Testament, in uh, Acts chapter, uh, let's see, 24, verse 5, the word is used, and it's used against Paul. It's actually used to describe Paul, but in a very bad way. He's being accused before uh, the court, and um, somebody says, we have in fact found this man a, a pestilent fellow, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, that word pestilent fellow is loimos. Um, and so they're essentially saying that we have found Paul to be a a pest, a, a plague of sorts. And think of a think of what a plague is. A plague is something that spreads among the different people and uses people as sort of a host. Um, and and that's exactly what Paul's being accused of here. He's an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect. So Paul is like a virus, you know, an agitator. He's a pestilence. And and so um, so back to Psalm chapter one. It says, "Don't sit in the seat of yeah of of you know." plagues. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's how you could translate it. Um, it's translated in the LES as evil persons, and that captures it. Obviously, that's a good general uh, way of putting it. But you could also uh, perhaps translate it as just a pestilent uh, pestilent type people or, uh, you know, people of the plague or something like that. Of course, that might be confusing. But it's fun to do these exercises of trying to think of different words to use in your translations because... Um, I'm all for making translations weird again, right? Uh, you know, making making the the text strange because I think it speaks to us when it's strange because it captures our attention. And so, why not put the word plague here or pestilence? I mean, that might might generate some discussion and perhaps generate um, uh, maybe some uh, some thought and, and and encourage investigation. So, anyway, just kind of a, a cool word to use, um, and and maybe you can go and, and play with that and. Um, come up with a cool translation, a good, good word there. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's verse one. Let's jump to verse chap, uh, verse two. Verse two says, but rather his will is focused on the law of the Lord and in his law, he will meditate day and night. Okay. So, um, yeah, a couple things I'll say about this is that word law, um, in verse 2, but rather his will is focused on the law of the Lord. The word law there is namas. And um, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, the word there, of course, is Torah. And uh, so clearly here he's talking about the Torah. This is the the Torah of Yahweh, the Torah of the Lord, and the law of the Lord. And namas um, typically means that, right? And even in the New Testament, Paul uses namas all throughout Romans, for example, to refer to the Torah. Now, some scholars will say, okay, well, maybe Paul's not referring to Torah. Maybe he's just referring to, say, natural law or the law of the mind or rational, you know, kind of a rational law. But I think that's a mistake. I think I think what Paul clearly is alluding to is, um, you, know, you know, he's a Jew, right? And so the law that he knows, that the law that he's been immersed in his whole life is the Torah. And so anyway, namas in Romans means Torah. And um, and here, namas is going to mean Torah as well. Um, in fact, in, in my translations, I, I like using those words, those Hebrew words, um, Torah. Um, you know, I, you know, when you're reading the Greek, I mean, I guess you can still use Torah. You can 
you can transliterate it. You don't have to translate it. Um, so that, that's perfectly permiss- permissible to do um, uh, from time to time, of course. Um, but anyway, it's, yeah, it says uh, on his law, um, he's focused on the law of God, the law of the Lord. And in verse 2 in the Hebrew Bible, the word Lord there is, of course, the word that we get Yahweh from. And so here it's kurios. And kurios, of course, is a word that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to Yahweh. And it's a word used to refer to Jesus, the Messiah, in the New Testament. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, just be on alert for that word kurios in your studies because um, it is it is the word uh, that um, is often translated uh, for the divine name and also applied to Jesus. And that is meant to say something that says something very important about the identity of Jesus. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, it says, um, but their delight is in the law of the Lord and in um, this text, the Septuagint, we have his will is focused on the law of the Lord. So slightly different translation here. Um, and um, in, in Hebrew, I mean, the word there is delight. That's how I would translate it. And um, here um, it's the will of the person that is kind of focused on on the Torah. So I guess you could say the Hebrew Bible has the, the person's delight is centered around Torah. In the, in the Greek Old Testament, you have the person's will is centered around Torah. So, you know, we might be splitting hairs here a little bit, but perhaps we can just simply say um, that they essentially mean the same thing because your will, um, you know, uh, and your delight, they go together. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, that's a word, the word there is used, um, has has the whole delight um, and, uh, in mind, but, um, but here, the, uh, the, the Greek word is thelema. And definitely used in terms of like a person's will. Anyway, you you will in what you delight in. So that that's sort of the the way to uh, to unite those uh, ways of thinking here, at least conceptually for English speakers. Um, okay, anything else I want to say about that? I don't think so. Um, yeah, let's talk about this idea of meditation. Um, meditation, M- uh, melatao. That's the word melatao, and uh, that's the word that we get for meditation. Um, it, it really gives the sense, if you kind of look up a little bit about the word, it, it, you, you get the sense of having you know, sustained attention at one thing. And there's always an action element, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you, there's an action element you know, um, involved here that you have sustained attention at a topic or a certain thing so that you can um, you know, act out on whatever it is you're meditating on. So there's a, a clear connection between cognition and, ac- and, and action, between theory and practice, you might say. Um, this would definitely make sense, especially for Jewish thinkers, because um, to hear God is to obey God, for example. We've talked about that before. And here to meditate upon the law day and night is essentially to marry yourself to the law such that you do the, do the things that the law tells you to do. Um, yeah, so I think meditation is a, a very, very, very important thing to um, to consider, especially for us Christians. Um, yeah, the and in Hebrew Bible, it's it's a it's a cool um, cool idea here. It, you know, you look it up and look up the word and in, in say the BDB or something, you're going to see glosses such as um, to mutter, to growl, to coo, or something to that effect. That that's kind of what the idea is of meditation. Um, it's it's a rummaging over the concept in your mind and in your heart. Um, you know, it's like chewing the cud. You know, you might say. Um, and here, I think, in, in, in Melitao, I think that's that idea is um, 
yeah, is definitely a part of um, what's going on here too. Um, yeah, so let's um, let's talk a little bit further, I guess, about meditation. Um, it, when I was kind of rummaging through um, this text, kind of meditating on this text, it reminded me of something that I had read, um, I guess, earlier in the year, uh, in January of 2023. And um, I had been been reading Dell Allison. Dell Allison is um, a scholar over at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'd been reading through his book, Encountering Mystery, and I actually interviewed Dell on this podcast. It was actually episode number two, so go back and check that out. It's a a great book. His, His book is called Encountering Mystery. Lots of fun to read. Anyway, um, there's a section in that book that really caught my attention, and uh, and I've never forgotten this part of the book. And so I wrote a little blog post on my website. Um, looks like it was published on January 8th of 2023. So what I'd like to do here is just read that blog post to you, and um, because there's a, a couple of quotes, a couple of quotations from Dale's book um, that I found really, really interesting and uh, relevant to this concept of meditation, you know, having sustained thought for any given period of time on God's word. Anyway, um, here's the blog post. I recently started reading Dale Allison's Encountering Mystery, a book packed with discussions about various religious experiences people sometimes report. It's been a fun read so far. Toward the end of his chapter on prayer, he cites a study that caught my eye. He writes, quote, A few years ago, psychologists at Harvard and the University of Virginia wanted to learn how people would react when placed in a bare room with nothing to do but think for 15 minutes. The study included, in addition to college students, people recruited from a church and a farmer's market. The researchers gave participants this choice. Either you can sit alone with your thoughts, or you can push a button that will give you a nasty electrical shock. The vast majority found sitting and thinking both difficult and unpleasant. So unpleasant and difficult that they preferred to push the button and inflict pain. On average, they pushed the button seven times. They preferred pain over being alone with their thoughts for a mere quarter of an hour. Unquote. I continue to write in this blog post. I say this. This would be hilarious if it weren't so sad. Allison cites this within the context of lamenting our addiction to screens, which arguably contributes to the corrosion of our attention spans. It's no secret that we have become intimately tethered to our smartphones. One wonders if we're doing something terrible to our minds, like training them to become dependent upon the next stimulus, the next text message ding, or the happy chime that alerts us to the latest social media comment. By inviting and indulging in such interpretations every single day, we condition our minds toward a habit of distraction, the result of which is mental fragmentation. In the end, our patience for engaging in any form of meaningful thought becomes stunted. When we attempt it, we can, we can manage to do so only briefly, and not a moment longer, for we must go searching for the next buzz. So, we prematurely set the book down to sneak a glance at our inbox, aimlessly scroll through social media, pillage through some Instagram reels, take an anxious peek at the latest news, sound bites only, of course. We thirst for information, but only the sort that allows us to consume quickly, for we refuse to commit to any process or work or effort to gain anything meaningful. We need stuff now. The life of patient reflection is itself a drag. It's become odd, taboo, and nearly blasphemous. 
These days, slow is sin because quick is in. This obviously has important ramifications for religious devotion. That's why, that's why Allison follows his remarks above with a question, one that should lead people of faith to think long and hard, if we can, about the situation we're in. He asks, quote, How likely is it that people who cannot bear to be alone without distraction, who are instantly restless without external stimulus, will carve out lengthy periods of uh, will carve out lengthy periods for private prayer of any sort. Yeah, so you can read that blog post on my website. It's a post from January 8th, 2023. Um, anyway, yeah, so there's a lot to be said about that. And I think what Dale is getting at here is this problem that we have that we just can't concentrate. We can't think, we can't stop and meditate on anything for longer than like three seconds. And, um, of course, social media and our screens just really um, exasperate the problem. Anyway, so, how you know, in light of all that and in light of those facts, I mean, how are we to meditate on the, on the law of the Lord day and night? That's a really good question. And I suspect the answer to that question is going to hurt because we're probably going to have to cut out some things in our life to be able to do that. And so it's going to look differently for everybody. But the goal is always the same, namely to focus our minds, our hearts, our attention, our lives, our whole life upon the beautiful word of God. That's the goal. That's what he's given us to do. So let's do what we can to be able to put ourselves in a position to meditate on his law day and night. Hey, friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of Scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry, and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of Scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff, and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support, too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. This brings us to verse 3. He will be like the tree that has been planted along the streams of the rivers, which will give its fruit in its season. And its leaf will not fall off. In all things, however much he does, he will be given prosperity. Okay, so the point here is that Torah is sustaining. We can't lose that anchor here. The whole point is is describing the person whose life is based upon Torah, whose mind is meditating constantly day and night upon Torah. Torah is a way of life for God's people. It's sustaining them. It keeps them alive. That's why the idea of being um, compared to a tree is so important. It's a tree planted along the streams of the of the rivers. It, it, this is the idea of um, of life. Of, of you know, Torah is the sustenance, the the stuff of life. Um, I like the part here where it says that this person who is described as a tree 
Um, they will give its fruit in its season. And I, I think this is a really good um, point to make. I like the horticulture analogies here that are used throughout scripture and especially here because it implies the idea of patience. Whenever you and I, um, whenever we give ourselves over to the Lord and we commit our ways to him, we sometimes mistakenly think that um, everything changes immediately. But that's not the case. You know, we bear fruit in the in the se- in, in the right season, and that takes time. You know, God is, God does not plant gardens; He plants orchards, and orchards take lots of time before you begin to see fruit. So, show yourself lots of grace, and as one songwriter says, "Be kind to yourself." I think that's a very important um, piece of advice. Um, yeah, you know, we have to grow accustomed to this idea of patience. Sometimes God moves slowly, and sometimes it takes. You know, sometimes it takes. Um, a lot of time to um, bear fruit, but we will bear fruit. I mean, that's the promise. If we are a, a truly a tree, a tree that is good, we will bear good fruit. That's something that Jesus says as well. The other thing I want to mention here is that he, it says that in all that they do, um, they will be given prosperity. This is not an endorsement of the prosperity gospel. I think that's pretty clear. I think we all know that by now that the prosperity gospel has always been a farce and we should never give any attention to it. Um, I hate the prosperity gospel, if I could be completely honest with you. I've seen it wreck lives, to be honest with you. I've seen it totally wreck lives. So I don't have, I have no respect for it. Um, and that's definitely not what's being taught here. Uh, the Bible clearly anticipates that the righteous will be persecuted and that the righteous will go through trials and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, for example, if, if you go back to, say, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, starting in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus there says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is Matthew chapter 5 verses 10, 11, and 12. But notice how he starts it off by saying, blessed are you. This is Makarios. Um, the same word that's used in Psalm 1 to speak about the person who is blessed. Um, so we need, to re- we need to recontextualize what we mean by blessing and prosperity. You know, prosperity and blessing, you know, in the biblical sense, can include trials. And, um, and I, think that's a, I think that's something that the whole prosperity gospel completely missed, that, you know, we can be prosperous and we can be blessed even in very bad and difficult situations that we go through. Let's face it, there's evil in the world. You know, there are no quick fixes um, to the problem of humanity. And so um, that we just exist in a, in a, in a messed up world. Um, Paul, I think, gives us some really good advice in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, look, in whatever situation that I am in, whether it's a good situation or a difficult situation, I've learned to trust God and be content. And I think that's the sort of prosperous lifestyle and blessed Makarios lifestyle that... Um, that our faith teaches us that we need to have. We, we, we're not promised to be raptured out of the tribulation. We are promised to be given grace to endure the tribulation. And, and I think that's an important point that we, need to, that we just need to make, right? We, we have this idea that God's going to rescue us um, from every situation. Um, look, you know, Jesus himself, the divine son of God, uh, you know, he wasn't, um, you know, he, he, he went through difficult situations. So what makes us think that we will be spared from them? So anyway, yeah, again, the point to make here is that, um, prosperity does not always look like 
you know, the American dream, if I can say say that, right? Um, it's it's a it's a different sort of grammar. It's a different sort of idea concept, if you will. And so again, we, we don't want to mute scripture. If if the psalmist can say that the the person is blessed, Makarios, um, by obeying Torah, um, and uh, if we can walk away from that thinking that everything's like super fine for that person for the rest of their life, then we've muted scripture. How so? Well, because we've denied um, what other texts clearly teach in scripture, namely Matthew chapter five, the text I just read, that the person can still be blessed even though they're going through a difficult trial. Again, go back and read Matthew chapter five, verses 10 through 12, and meditate upon that with respect to what we've just read in Psalm chapter one, verse three. Let's jump to verse four. Not so the ungodly, not so, but rather they are like the chaff that the wind spreads abroad away from the face of the land. This actually sheds some light upon what is meant by prosperity. Prosperity here is, again, it, it, it doesn't look like what you know Westerners typically think of the word prosperity. Prosperity here essentially means stability. That's why um, they're compared here with the ungodly who disregard Torah. Um, the righteous are planted, and that's what is meant by prosperous. They're stable in the Torah. They're stable in their relationship with God, such that whether they go through good times or bad times, they can say, I have learned contentment, such like that other Jewish man that we know, St. Paul, right? I mean, he said that same thing. So, um, And so in verse 4, we see a contrast, a, a very strong contrast with the Torah-observant person. This person... Uh, in verse 4, the ungodly, they are not like that. They are not stable. They are tossed by the wind like the chaff that spreads them across the face of the land. Um, and there's there's a strong double negation here in the language in Greek. Uch hutos. Uch hutos. And not so the ungodly, not so. Um, and so it, the, the, the uh, psalmist wants us to understand that... Um, that that there's a strong, not just simple, but a very strong disjunction between the ways of the godly and the way of the ungodly. Again, you see this um, dichotomy between a stability versus instability, this idea of being planted versus being blown by the wind. The godly are stable and planted. The ungodly are unstable and tossed by the wind. They are subject to the whims of their circumstances, such that they, when they are in a bad situation or in a good situation, their um, attitudes are so dependent upon their situations that their attitudes change so often. And so the mark of Christian maturity is the mark of being able to look at your circumstances and saying, okay, yes, my circumstances are less than ideal. Yes, my circumstances are really bad right now. But you know what? I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to center myself along that river of water, and I'm going to plant myself in God's word, and I will trust him no matter what happens. And that's the person that this psalm is describing, the person who is grounded upon God's word, the person who meditates upon it day and night such that um, they are immersed in God's holy scripture. The contrast between the godly and the ungodly continues in verse 5 as well. So here's what verse 5 says. On account of this, the ungodly will not stand up in the judgment, nor will the sinful stand in the counsel of the righteous. Okay, so a couple of things I want to just mention here. Um, that First, this is mirroring um, verse 1. So you remember in verse 1 it says, 
Blessed is the man who does not go in the counsel of the ungodly nor and does not stand in the way of sinners. Well, here um, you see some of that mirroring happen here as well. On account of this, the ungodly will not stand. So there's that idea of standing. Does not stand in the way of 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 uh, yeah. Does not stand in the way of sinners. That's verse one and verse five. On account of this, the ungodly will not stand up in the judgment. Um, so the same concept here. Um, uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, um, and yeah, just just notice that mirroring here. Now here in verse five, we have a fun word here for um, uh, for standing. Um, so it's anastemi, anastemi, and it means to rise, to stand up. I mean, it's a it's a fine translation that we have here. Um, what's interesting though about anastemi is um, it's a word that's used in the New Testament uh, as a word that refers to um, the uh, the resurrection. Okay, so if I go to John chapter twenty verse nine, it says, "For as yet they did not understand the scripture." that he must rise from the dead, anastami. Um, so, yeah, this is pretty interesting here, I think, in some respects. Because we know if we take a canonical perspective of this verse, a, a larger theological interpretive approach, then we can see that, yeah, this is like really true because, um, you know, uh, there will be no resurrection for eternal life for uh, these um, ungodly people. They're, you know, they're not going to be able to stand or rise up to life in the judgment, okay? They, they're not going to be able to, to stand um, in the counsel of the righteous. Now, I want to say something a little bit about the counsel of the righteous phrase. Um, boule de kayon. Boule de kayon. And um, fine translation here. Um, it's really interesting because if you, when you hear that, you know, if you are sensing from that some sort of... Uh, uh, echo or nod um, to the divine counsel motif that we see throughout scripture. Um, if you're thinking along those lines when you hear this idea of the counsel of the righteous in Psalm chapter one, well, if you're thinking along those lines, you're not thinking wrongly. You're not mistaken. I think there is a sort of um, connection here. Definitely so. Um, and so, so for example, like if we go to Psalm chapter 81, uh, the LXX, Psalm 81, uh, Septuagint, um, that's what I meant by LXX. That means seventy. Um, anyway, uh, it's a it's a it's an it's a uh, another way to say Septuagint. Okay, there's a reason for that, but we won't get into all that. But anyway, um, Psalm eighty one. <clears throat> um, it says a Psalm of Asaph. God stood in the assembly of the gods, and in the, and in the middle he judges the gods. So um, the first part there of verse one, God stood in the assembly of the gods. Um, Hatheos este in synagogue theon. Um, synagogue theon means the synagogue of God or the assembly of the gods. Yeah, assembly of the gods, plural. Um, that's definitely important to keep in mind. This is uh, a plural thing. Um, yeah, so if you're familiar with like the work of Mike Heiser, I'm 100% on board with his approach here. I think that's a, a very faithful reading of the text of this whole divine council motif thing that Mike has spent, you know, so much time and his scholarship and just talking about. So, um, yeah, highly, highly recommend to go read Mike's book, The Unseen Realm, if you have not read that, because it goes into all that sort of stuff. Um, but here, just wanted, I just wanted to make a, a reference to the Sunagoge Theon, the Assembly of the Gods in Psalm um, 81, Septuagint, um, because I think there's a, 
there's a link here to the Boulet de Caillon, the Council of the Righteous idea. Okay, so the sinful people, those who do not plant themselves firmly in the soil of Torah, they will not be able to stand in the Council of the Righteous because they are unrighteous. They are not dikaios. They are not righteous. They are unrighteous. Um, so that's a very important um, point to make. Um, yeah, let's see what else here we want to do. Uh, you know, going on into verse 6, we can just jump into that. Um, verse 6 we have, um, it continues along. It says, Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Okay, so that's a contrasting idea here between the, the ungodly and the godly. Um, yeah, so let me say something about this word knows. Um, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The word knows here is not merely a reference to God's knowledge of a fact. It's not merely a reference to his omniscience. Rather, the word know here is a reference to something more intimate and something more salvific. It's a covenantal knowing. This is very much in line with the Hebrew idea of how God knows his people. Um, This is a very uh, intimate idea, okay? Intimate knowing, a covenantal knowing. I think that's the best way to see that. Um, Yeah, and... And so, um, so we, need, we need to pay very close attention to that. The reason we need to pay close attention to that fact is um, because, again, the contrast here is between those who are in God's covenant and those who are not in covenant with him, those who keep Torah and those who do not keep Torah. Um, God knows he's intimately covenanted with those who keep Torah. Those are his people, and he knows them. He intimately knows them. Um, and this is a salvific knowing, just as I said. And the reason I say that is because of the contrast we see in the second part of verse 6. It says, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Okay, so here, notice the parallelism here, which is very common in, in um, you know, Hebrew poetry, very common in the, in the Psalms. And so notice the parallel of verse 6. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. So to be known by God is to not perish. To to perish is to be not known by God. And so you see the parallelism there. It's not like a one-for-one parallel because it's asking you to supply the missing parts here. So let me read it again. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. So again, you know, what does he mean? What does it mean to be known by God? It means you won't perish. And what does it mean if you do end up perishing? Well, it means you're not known by God. You're not covenanted um, with God in a relationship. Um, so yeah, that's a very important um, point to make. Um, yeah, so anyway, yeah, Psalm chapter one is worth your meditation. It is worth thinking through and uh, giving a lot of your time over to. I would say, you know, if, if I could be so bold to offer some advice is to say, I think we should all meditate on Psalm chapter one day and night. The reason is because there's so much here worth meditating upon. There's so many different um, things that we can apply to our life. And and it's a challenge, just going back to the idea of meditation, it's a challenge to get us in our busy, fast-paced culture. It, it's such a challenge to get us to slow down and to think deeply about anything. And, um, and yet that's God's will for us. You know, elsewhere in the Psalms, it says, Be still and know that I am God. You know, I, I can't help but think that's a, that's, that happens in that order. You know, 
to know God is to be still, right? Be still and then know that that he is God. I mean, sometimes we get so caught up in the humdrum, fast-paced kind of culture that we live in that we forget to just stop and um, get to know God through meditation on his word and prayer and so forth. I think the motivation that we could find for doing that is to know that we are known by God, just as Psalm chapter 1 verse 6 says. Um, You know, we love him because he first loved us. And uh, I think we're invited to get to know him because he has known us first. He knows us very intimately because he is our creator. And um, so I just want to encourage you in your own study of scripture to um, carve out some time every day, every week, every month to just focus in and meditate on his wonderful, beautiful, and life-giving word. The last thing I want to say is to make some comments uh, very briefly about Romans, because what does this have to do with Romans? Well, you know, here in Psalm chapter one, we see that Torah is emphasized as a way of life. You know, obeying Torah, meditating on Torah is like being a tree planted by the waters. So there's an emphasis there on Torah um, as a way of living. Well, this goes, I think, quite a ways in explaining why Paul has a similar emphasis on Torah in Romans. So for Paul, doing Torah is important. Again, go back and listen to Romans chapter 2 and that episode. I think there's a couple episodes on Romans 2, if I'm not mistaken. But go back and listen to those discussions because I talk about, you know, how Paul can conceive of doing Torah. Um, Now, in his mind, Torah has to be done Christologically. That's true. But Paul clearly retains the language of doing Torah. And then he recontextualizes doing Torah in light of his Christological convictions, but he never gets rid of the idea of doing Torah. Why? Because he's a Jew and he's been immersed in concepts um, uh, like what the concepts that we've seen here in Psalms 1 that, you know, meditating and centering one's life around Torah is a good thing and it's a life giving thing. And for Paul, the only way to truly um, do Torah and perform uh, you know, and to fulfill rather the, the deeds of Torah is through um, pledging our faithfulness to Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and But the point I just want to make is that notice how Paul retains the language of doing Torah in Romans 2 and Romans 10 verse 4, for example, 10 verse 5 and following. Um, you know, and Paul's not doing anything really weird with Torah. I mean, yeah, he recontextualizes it around his Christology. That's very clear. If you've been following along in the Roman series, you've, you've noticed that. Paul recontextualizes do the concept of doing Torah around uh, faith faith in Christ. That's not something really abnormal for a Jew of the first century to do, because if you go and read like the Dead Sea Scrolls, like you go read the Qumranian sect, you know they're they're they contextualize Torah in their own way too, um, which is pretty interesting. So go, so go read for example the Habakkuk Pesher. Um, it's fascinating the, the way they conceive of doing Torah. Specifically, notice the the pressure on Habakkuk two verse four, um, and, and notice how they interpret um, the whole the, the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith um, passage. Um, but anyway, yeah, I just want to make that connection because I think there's something here in Psalms uh, Psalm one that we can learn from that would actually expand our horizons and help us to think more clearly about the way Paul conceptualizes the whole idea of keeping Torah. Well, friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me as we read through Psalm chapter 1. I look forward to next time when we continue our study 
of God's Holy Scripture. That's the end of today's episode, and thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted, or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.